turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 15, about halfway through the book. It's a good study so far. I hope that you're enjoying the life of David, the very many things that have gone, been going on in his life in the last uh, several chapters, though, have been uh, a very major time of struggle for him. Ever since his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, things have gone south rather quickly for David. He's lost his oldest son, Amnon. His uh, daughter, Tamar, has been raped. Absalom was in exile for several years, and now at the end of chapter 14, we finally see David accepting Absalom back into Jerusalem after about five years away from his father. During that time, Absalom has been arranging things. And we find those arrangements in chapter 15 coming to their culmination. Absalom is so angry that he uh, is going to act very much out of character for a man who says he serves God. But in the first part of chapter 15, he gives his father the impression that he's very much interested in serving the Lord. So we'll step right into this. It's just after the time that Absalom has been allowed back into Jerusalem, and for two years he was unable to see his father, until finally Joab convinced David to let Absalom come before David and be totally allowed to see his face once again. He does that, kisses Absalom with a kiss of acceptance, and now Absalom is back in, according to Jewish tradition, the favor of his father. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and so it was when, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from the tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there's no one, no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I would be judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now here's what's happening. Absalom is making himself to be, to appear to be a delegate of David by showing himself with the authority that he displays with the men running before him and the horses and chariots as somebody who is going to be used by the king for a specific purpose at the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Whether or not David is aware of this, we're not told. If he was, it should have been some kind of a level of suspicion in his mind as to what was going on. 
But perhaps he was either too ill or too busy to notice what was going on. I say too ill because many of the Psalms that David writes in the latter years of his life reflect the fact that he was not as strong and healthy a man as he once had been. He oftentimes talks about his infirmities, about the the fact that uh, even his family has, has stayed away from him because of the infirmities. Whatever those infirmities may have been, we're not told. But there was indication in the Psalms in many places that he had some issues physically, and it may have been the reason why he wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to Absalom's uh, having done these things. But it is doing something among the people of Israel that David should have been made aware of. It tells us very plainly in verse um, 6, as we just read, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, David won the hearts of the men of Israel by his valiant efforts to protect and and to uh, help the people, especially during the latter time of uh, Saul's reign. And in his early years, he did a great deal to win the hearts of the people. But here it's said that Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people, stolen them from David because he's saying, look, you've, you've come with a right and just cause. But unfortunately, David's just not paying attention to these things anymore. He doesn't even have a deputy to handle your case. So that's why Absalom speaks out publicly. I wish that I could be the judge, the ruler. It was a king's responsibility to be the judge. So he's outright claiming this desire to usurp the authority that David has and become the judge of Israel. And in the process of his treatment of the people who have come for judgment by the king, he has stolen those hearts of the men of Israel. Now, we're not told exactly how many months or years that this might have been taking place. But we do know that it's probably very likely that David is in his 60s right now in this part of the story. And he only lives until the age of about 70 years old. So he's approaching the end of his life and reign. But it says in verse 7, Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I have made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, Aram, saying that if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now take note of the fact in verse 7 it says, It came to pass after 40 years. Now there's a bit of a problem with that statement because nobody really knows for certain what the writer means by that. In fact, there are some manuscripts and the Septuagint Greek translation of the original Hebrew and historians like Josephus who referred to this passage with the phrase four years instead of 40 years. And so that brings a bit of confusion as to what was meant here. It can't really be the 40 years of David's reign because he hasn't completed his 40-year reign. He's probably in his, I think, early 60s by all accounts. So it doesn't make any sense that that's a reference to that. 
What it may be is a reference to the age of Absalom. He might have been 40 years old. And I think that's probably the very best option that we have as far as understanding whether or not it was translated correctly as 40 years or as some minor translations indicate, four years. But I think it's good to stay with the 40, and that explanation of this being his age is probably the most likely. But it says that in verse 8, Absalom explains to David that he had made a vow while he was at Gesher with his grandfather in exile from David for those first three years. And now after more than two years, he wants to make sure that that vow that he has made is solidified by going to the place where he believes he is to worship the Lord in Hebron. Now, Hebron, you may recall, was the place where David ruled Judah for the first seven or so years of his early reign as king of Judah and then later of Israel. And then after seven and a half years, he moved the uh, city of his uh, palace to Jerusalem, where he reigned from Jerusalem for the remainder of his time as king. But Absalom was born in Hebron. And it tells us that he wants to go there, and the king in verse 9 says, Go in peace. Now sadly, these are the last recorded words that David speaks directly to Absalom. Go in peace. He trusted Absalom because Absalom had no reason to lie in David's eyes. He was going to do a very, very good, godly thing by going to the Lord to pay his vows and worship the Lord. And David thought that was a very good thing for him to do. And it would have been, but that wasn't the reason he was going to Hebron, as we'll soon see. Verse 10 says, Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, from Gilo, which he offered while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Take note of the fact that first of all he sent spies throughout all the nation and at the appointed time he is expecting them to announce that Absalom reigns in Hebron. As far as the people of Israel knew this was an ascension to the throne that was accepted by King David perhaps. It may very well be again because of the fact that he was not well physically, that he was giving Absalom, who was in line for that, because he was the oldest now of the sons of David, and would be the most likely heir to the throne. And many times in the kingdom of Judah and in Israel, if a son was chosen by the king to take his place, there was oftentimes a transition period between the king's reign, and his sons taking over that reign of the nation. So this would have been very, very likely to be the reason that the people didn't seem to have any apparent 
awareness of what was going on. Again, he took 200 men from Jerusalem that he invited to go with him to Hebron, and they didn't have a clue as to what he was doing. But there is somebody that's mentioned here that does very much know all of the details and is labeled later as a fellow conspirator with Absalom, and his name is given here in verse 12, Ahithophel. Now, you remember the name Ahithophel has already come up in our study in Second Samuel. He is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And the reason that it's very, very obvious in the writer's uh, description of what's going on in this conspiracy, it was not something that Ahithophel took very lightly when his granddaughter was taken by David and his granddaughter's husband was killed by David. He was in the know about those things eventually and apparently that caused him to be very, very upset, very angry with David. And we find that in several of the scriptures uh, in the book of Psalms, for instance, in the book of Second Samuel later, also in First Chronicles, we see that there is a very, very bad taste in his mouth over this act that David had, a sin rather, that David had committed with Bathsheba. And we'll see later on in this study that he is actually so very mad at what David did that he's going to be doing something very, very vengeful and ultimately... It will cost him his life. But we find in Psalm 55, for instance, um, verse 12 of Psalm 55 says, It was not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. This is David writing. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So David laments the fact that uh, this man who was one of his favored counselors, this Ahithophel, was one who chose to turn against David and in the end uh, was the one who became a conspirator with Absalom to take his life and to take his throne. Verse Psalm 49 also says much of the same thing, so you can read that one at your leisure, but Psalm 49, Psalm 55 are two psalms that speak of this deceitful thing that Ahithophel is going to be doing with David's son, Absalom. Verse 13 continues and says, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Now as much of a threat to David that Absalom is, and also that Ahithophel is, we find that there's a great number of people who are loyal to David. 
great loyalty is expressed in these passages, but also there is rebellion and rejection. And there's also feigned loyalty. And that's not unlike what's going on in the world today. There are those who are committed with great loyalty to the things of God through serving God by His Son's name, in His Son's name, doing His will. They are very, very loyal, and I hope that can be said of all of us. But there are some who kind of feign their loyalty, sometimes for gain, sometimes for, well, Peter calls it filthy lucre's sake, sometimes for popularity's sake, sometimes for, well, a prideful attitude towards their ability to speak on behalf of God. Although they don't really know the power of God, they deny the power of God, but they have a zeal for God. So there's many different ways that things that appear to be loyalty turn out in the end to be rejection. But there was also, again, this several examples in this passage that we're looking at of all three of those states of the character of men and women who either said that they are loyal and were not, who made it very clear that they are loyal even to the point of death, and that's very, very commendable. And then there are those who just take the opposite side and hate the king. It really fits very well. David as a type of Jesus Christ in this passage. There are many who are loyal, committed. There are many who think they are so but are not. And there are many who are absolutely against the Lord. And they make it known. So it was with David. And this first part of the story that was just read in verses 15 through, uh, 13 through 15 is the first example of great loyalty. His servants, they said, whatever you tell us, we will do. The next example, in verse 16, it tells us, Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all the servants passed before him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, all the Gittites, six hundred men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Not only his household servants, but all of these who are actually foreigners who were given the privilege of serving David as men in his army, many of them his mighty men. And they're named as the Gittites and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. They were all, and even the 600 men who had originally been with David while he was hiding from Saul in Gath, in the Philistine territory, they are also with him. They followed him even in this situation. They passed before the king. Great loyalty for those men and women who served him for so many years. And in verse 19 it says, Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king. He's talking about with Absalom even referring to Absalom now as the king. But he, David, is the king. And then he says, For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I know not where I go? 
Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there all so your servant will be. Now Ittai had, according to verse 20, just arrived the previous day in exile. He's likely from one of the foreign lands surrounding Judah, most possibly the Philistine territory. He came to seek protection by David, and he trusted David. He also trusted David's God. He was influenced by the things that David had done in David's previous years. Whether it was Gath, then it would have been before David became king. Ittai may have been aware of the things that David had accomplished back then. Certainly his name had spread throughout all the region, and this man Ittai recognized that David was a man who served his God and that his God was worthy of being served. And so Ittai answers the king in verse 21, as the Lord, he's referring to Jehovah, the God of Israel, as Jehovah lives and as my Lord the king lives, referring to David, not Absalom. And take note of the fact that he says, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. That reminds me of the devotion of Ruth to her mother-in-law, who said basically the same thing. Your God is my God. Whatever happens to you, I'm still going to be with you, whether by life or death. I am your daughter-in-law forever. As much as you will allow me to be, I want to stay with you. And this is what Ittai here is saying to David. That's great loyalty. That is amazing loyalty. That is what we should be thinking when we consider how loyal are we with regard to our commitment to God, to, to Jesus Christ, to serving Him in such a way as this, even in death, to live as Christ, to, de- uh, uh, to die as gain. We know that it is very much our responsibility to live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That is what Ittai was saying about David. It is what you and I should be and are saying with our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. All right, you're with me. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of the Covenant of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. So they decided to take the Ark of the Covenant from the tent that had been set up in Jerusalem by David, and they're carrying it appropriately by the Levites carrying the Ark. As they're leaving Jerusalem, the Ark is going with them. Now, it's not because they think the Ark is some lucky charm like they did back in Eli's day, but they believe that God was with David. And wherever David was going, they thought that the Ark should go also so that David could inquire of the Lord and David could worship the Lord at the ark because they knew how important 
God was to David and the worship of God by coming to the place where the ark was in order for him to just come before the Lord and worship him in spirit and in truth. But David says in verse 25, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you. Here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. David is resting in the will of God to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. He doesn't need the Ark of the Covenant to be with him. In fact, he probably would consider it a very, very wrong thing for them in the, fact, in the fact that they had to escape from Absalom so quickly, and what would happen if the, of, the, of the ark if they were actually captured by Absalom and the armies that he might bring. So David is being very cautious. But he has another reason for sending Zadok the priest back, and he explains that in verse 29. He says, Therefore Zadok and Abiathar, or Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and went up as, and, and wept rather, as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. That's humility. His head covered. His feet bare. It's a very rocky place to be walking barefooted. But he's doing this with great humility and sorrow over what is being, taking place in Jerusalem. He's weeping over Jerusalem like Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he looked down upon the city in the day that he stood there and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have loved to have gathered you as a chicken gathers her hens under her wing, but you would not. Well, David wept for the people and wept for the city and wept for the fact that he was being forced out of the city of Jerusalem, and his throne was being usurped by his own son, Absalom. All the people, it says, also in verse 30, who were with him, covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Now they're moving from the city, on the eastern side of the city, up the Mount of Olives, heading toward the Jordan River, and there's a stretch of wilderness between that little river that they're crossing over now, this, this place that they've just come to. And as soon as they cross over that, they've got a kind of a short wilderness journey downward to the Jordan River, and they will be doing that. But now they're in this wilderness area, and they're staying there for a season. It says in verse 31, Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now that's an interesting prayer. Immediately, David recognizes that Ahithophel, as a counselor to Absalom, is a great danger to David and the people who are with them. Because David recognized that Ahithophel has a great deal of power in his counselor ability that had been recognized by all of Israel all the years that he was with David. But now that he is on Absalom's side, he is very concerned that Ahithophel is going to influence the people of Israel against David. And it's a very, very right 
understanding of what was taking place. So immediately, David's prayer is, Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, I want you to take note of how fast God answers prayer, oftentimes when the need is great. And the need certainly was great in this situation. In verse 32, it tells us very clearly, now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, he hadn't even finished going into the area that he's going to be finding some degree of rest in the wilderness, but he's at the top of the mountain, and there he worshipped God. And as he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. Now, who is Hushai? Well, as it turns out, and we find this out in First Chronicles, Hushai was also a very favored friend of David. Also, spending time with David, much of his time as a king and a confidant of the king. Very, very special man. And he now is coming with this robe torn and also very, very saddened by the events that are taking place. And David says in verse 33, David said to him, if you go on with me, then you'll become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now be also your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. So David is realizing this answer to prayer. Hushai can help the situation with the counsel that Ahithophel is going to give Absalom if he can get back into Jerusalem and convinced his son Absalom that he's on his side instead of David's side, like Ahithophel is, then he could act as a spy. Hushai the spy. And he did do exactly as David had said. Now, I guess you could say that this is the first Mossad of Israel. You may may be familiar with the term Mossad. It is the secret service of Israel. And they have spies everywhere, in Iran, in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Palestine, wherever they need to get secret information that is supposedly unclassified, or rather classified information from all of these various governments. The Mossad is asked to go in and infiltrate and send spies to hear what is going on within those special territories that are enemies of the Lord, enemies of Israel. Very effective. Well, Hushai was the first Mossad member, a very, very well-placed spy indeed. And we'll find that out as we go further. Verse 35 says, And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. And indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Perfect timing. Absalom comes into Jerusalem. He doesn't know that his father has already fleed from the city, but he finds the city undefended and the palace of David uninhabited, with the exception of the ten concubines of David. Chapter 16 continues 
And we see some of the things that we were referring to previously with regard to loyalty. So far we've seen Hushai, great loyalty to the king. We've seen Itai, tremendous loyalty to the king. The servants of David's household, wonderful loyalty to the king. All of those men who were with him in Gath, still loyal, standing by their man. Now in chapter 16, we see one who feigns his loyalty. It looks good on the outside, but we won't see until later that he's a deceiver and he's doing it for his own benefit, not the benefit of David and his kingdom. In verse 1 of chapter 16, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Remember him? Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, who was sitting at David's table every day because of David's mercy and grace that he poured out upon this son of Jonathan, this descendant of Saul. Ziba was the servant of Saul, who was given charge by David to take care of all of Mephibosheth's land while Mephibosheth rested in Jerusalem with his king. So Ziba, the servant, has come now. And it says, he met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins and 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit are for young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, uh, well, I hate to tell you this, David. Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. He lied. That wasn't what Mephibosheth had said. We'll find that later. But suffice it to say, this man is after David's favor. At the expense of his master, that he had been instructed to help and to maintain the property of this poor crippled man, Mephibosheth. So the king says, verse, 40, uh, verse 4, So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. You see, David is weakened by all of the things that are happening. And his judgment here is very, very quick and should not have been made at this stage. He only had one side of the story. But hearing what he did and being so worn and so distraught over the situation that was taking place in his life, he immediately snaps with judgment. All that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord and my king. That's feigned loyalty. He really didn't care about David. He only wanted something for himself. And he got it, at least so far. Well, that's what feigned loyalty can do. It can deceive. It never really, ever fools the Lord. He was able to fool David, but that's an exception. David was just a man. No one can fool the Lord. No you, not I, no anyone. Even Judas didn't fool him because the Lord Jesus knew from the beginning 
who it was who would betray him. Well, verse 5 says, Now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continually as he came. Now here's a man who is antagonistic, he's rebellious, he is a rejecter of David, and he's making it known. And he's taking advantage of the situation. He knows that David will not do anything because David is a hurting, very, very humiliated and saddened man on the run. So he comes cursing continuously as he came. And verse 6 it says, He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue, you son of Belial, in other words. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. He didn't take the kingdom from Saul. Saul was responsible for losing the kingdom. David had many times an opportunity to take the throne of Saul forcefully, but he would not steal the throne. He would not do harm to the Lord's anointed. This man is absolutely way, way off base, far, far from the truth. But he's angry at David. And he's been angry apparently for some time. And he's now able to vent his anger by saying such terrible things to this man of God who is a king of Israel still. One of David's cousins, Joab's brother, Abishai, steps up to the plate. Verse 9 says, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. Now that's the way it ought to work. Let's get rid of this threat to you, David. I can handle this single-handedly. And yes, he certainly could have. But his grace, here is mercy. Here is David's heart. It says in verse 10, But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? He's not only referring to Abishai, he's also referring to Joab, who was just as apt to do the same sort of thing. So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? This man is nothing compared to the situation that I'm facing with my son. So don't put anything on this man. Don't worry about the threats that this man can give. Let's worry about Absalom instead. So let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. Perhaps that's why he's allowed to do this, because God is instructing him to do so. David is not counting that out as a possibility. David knows that he had sinned. David knows that he, by the prophecy of Nathan, Nathan, many, many years already before this, had prophesied about the things that were happening even now that there would be a usurping of the throne, that there would be death in David's family, and that not only would the child that was born of Bathsheba's and his sin, 
but also others in David's family would die as well. The sword would never leave the house of David. David knew all of these things very, very well. He was still carrying, I think, the guilt of his sins that he had committed. And it weighed heavily on his heart. So he's saying, the Lord is just. If he wants to deal with this way, let him do so. I deserve it. You know, when we're feeling condemned, when we're feeling great guilt, let us be mindful of this one fact. The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Sins are forgiven. Debt is paid. The price for your sin is death. And that's what Jesus did for you and for me, for all of us. So we need to be mindful of the fact that if we're feeling condemnation, if we're feeling heavy guilt over our sins, both past, present, and or future, let us be mindful of the fact that God has forgiven. And we need to confess our sins, and we need to pay for those sins in a way that God chooses. He does chasten. He does cause us to expect to have consequences to our sins. But never should we be weighted down with a sense of guilt or condemnation. Just accept the fact that the love of God necessitates He dealing with us as a father deals with his son. The chastening is for a season, and that is necessary. But let us never think that God is going to condemn us for our sins. That's not so. That is impossible. But David here is still suffering from this situation that he knows he is responsible for, the things that are happening now. And it's all because of his sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. Well, verse 12 says, It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary. They were tired. They were running. And they needed to stop. So they refreshed themselves there. They're in the wilderness. They're needing to rest. They're very weakened by this series of events. Now we find more of what Ahithophel is doing in Jerusalem with regard to his hatred for the king that he once served. Verse 15 says, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was, when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but... But the, uh, no, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. So Hushai is convincing Absalom that he's on Absalom's side. And apparently it seems to work. Absalom doesn't question, doesn't doubt, he just accepts this man, like Ahithophel, has turned against 
his very, very close friend, David. So he's excited about this, apparently. And now that Hushai is accepted by Absalom, he's in the court and is to hear everything that's going on. Mossad is at work in the courts of the enemy's palace. Then Absalom, verse 20 says, to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. So he's asking Ahithophel, because he was David's counselor, now he's Absalom's counselor, give me some word of advice that we should proceed according to whatever it is that you tell me. He was so trusted that his word was like the word of God to some. We'll see that in a moment. So it tells us in verse 21, Ahithophel says to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hand of all who are with you will be strong. Remember one of the prophecies that Nathan has said to David is that when you did this in secret, David, you are going to have it done in public against you. And this is exactly what's taking place here. Ahithophel is recommending to Absalom that he go into each one of those ten concubines of David and commit adultery. She, they were all technically wives of David, although they're called concubines. Slight difference in a full-fledged wife and a concubine. The concubine was primarily for the purpose of sexual gratification, more or less, and service in the house. Absalom thinks nothing of this. Nobody seems to think that's absolutely against the word of God. We can't do this. This is sinful. That wasn't the case at all. As we see, this recommendation was accepted by Absalom. Verse 22 says, So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired of the oracle of God. And so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So we find here this terrible rejection of David, this turning against the one who is the one after God's own heart, the apple of God's eye, the servant of the great king who was anointed by God to be the king of Israel, taken from feeding the lambs of his father to feeding the lambs of God in the house of Israel, developing a kingdom that would be established, which would be a forever kingdom, a kingdom that would continue all the days, all the days of the life of man upon the earth. There's much, much more to happen in this story as it continues to unfold for us. Chapter 17 will give us more details about the effectiveness of Ahithophel and also of the way that God moves in the hearts of men who turn against God as a scheme to usurp 
that which God has put in place. We'll find God makes a way to preserve all that he intends to preserve. Well, we'll stop there tonight. Loyalty. How important is it to us? Are we loyal even unto death to our king? My hope and prayer is that we all will be. There are difficult times coming. Perhaps we're already experiencing some difficulties that we don't understand. And we don't really know why God is allowing them. But they happen. It rains on the just and the unjust. We can't deny that there is a great likelihood that we may suffer persecution in the church in these last days. Many around the world already are. We can't exclude that for us in this nation. We can't exclude the possibility of this nation being judged by God. But will we stand? Will we remain faithful? Will we be unwavering in our faith when things come down so very, very hard on us? When so many things take place that those that we thought were loyal friends turn against us? Will that loyal friends only are loyal for their own personal gain? My hope and prayer is that each of us will stand together and remain loyal to each other and also to our King, Jesus Christ, for all our days. Let us honor Him in it. In Jesus' name we pray.